You're listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. This is Epiphany Tide, the season in which we recognize and celebrate the revelation of God as given in Jesus Christ. In Him, the light that we can only see in part, in glimpses and glimmers, has finally dawned. It dwells among us and shines on us, and the darkness cannot overcome it. The infinite has become the intimate, and to the question, what is God like? We have been given a full and final answer. God is like Jesus, because Jesus is God, our living epiphany. So I love that, uh, that little introduction to Epiphany, where the infinite has become intimate, where the question of what is God like has finally fully been answered in the person of Jesus, that God is like Jesus. The good news of this is that things are actually much better than we could have imagined. Uh, God is much better than we could have hoped for, that the story of, of the various texts that we look at today is a story of an overwhelming generosity. Uh, generosity like that, like the reckless love of God, the generosity of God just, just overflows onto us. We're going to be focusing on this story in John chapter 2 where Jesus turns the water to wine. Um, the Gospel of John is sometimes looked at and divided into two sections, kind of 1 through 12 and 13, or 1 through 11, excuse me, and 12 through 21. And the first half is sometimes referred to as the book of signs, and the second half, the book of glory. The first half, the book of signs, is because this is the word that John loves. He doesn't use the word miracle so much, um, or not at all exactly, but he does use this word sign, and Jesus will do a variety of these signs to do what? To kind of show who he is, or to provide for something. Uh, just a, a quick look at these. In, the, in chapter 2, he changes the water to wine. In chapter 4, he heals the royal uh, official son. In chapter 5, he heal, heals the paralytic who can't get down into the water fast enough. In chapter 6, he feeds the 5,000. Uh, later, in chapter 6, he walks on water. In chapter 9, he heals the man who was born blind. And then in chapter 11, as the raising of Lazarus. So these are all these kind of miraculous things, these signs that Jesus is doing. But what's interesting about this first sign is it doesn't seem to fit any of the normal uh, characteristics of a sign. But Jesus does these things, but no one's quite sure what's happening. Um, like his mother speaks to him, and then he kind of seems to be grumpy. It's hard to tell what's going on there. Uh, he has some servants fill these jars with water, but they don't seem to know what's happening. And then the, the water is taken to the steward for him to taste. There's no evidence that the, the servants had tasted it themselves, so who knows whether or not they knew something had happened. Uh, the steward tastes it. Obviously, he's impressed. But then what, what was this sign for? I mean, no one is healed. Uh, no one is kind of delivered of demonic oppression. There's no great kind of natural 
kind of parting of the waters or calming of the storm. And even, even if we think, well, this sign is to kind of reveal who he is, we're not sure anybody knows. Since the very last verse, it says that the disciples knew and, and they glorified him. But there's, this, this seems to lack utility. It almost seems to lack purpose. And this is the first sign of Jesus? This is the very first one? This is the first time we realize that somehow his life is different than normal life? And what does he do? He extends a party. A wedding. So, I love weddings. Uh, I, I love to go to them. I love to perform them. I love to dance at weddings. I'm not a particularly good dancer, but it's a lot of fun. I enjoy the music. But, you know, there's a difference between a wedding and a marriage. Like, a wedding is, is, should be all kind of good. You know, all happy. Now, sometimes we have some drama and things take place at our weddings, but generally, the wedding is a good day. The marriage is kind of a, a mix of things, right? There's kind of ups and there's downs. But along the way in those ups and downs, we have these anniversary celebrations to remember the wedding day because the wedding is that celebratory kind of happy time when there's more food than we can eat, there's more drink than we can drink, there's more fun than we can have because we're kind of celebrating this commencement of this union, of these lives that are kind of coming together. And so here, in the small village of Cana, hugging the shore of Galilee, we find Jesus and his disciples at a wedding. Now, there are these kind of peculiar uh, characteristics to this story that perhaps we can pause and just look at a few and see if there's anything there. The interaction between Jesus and his mom. So in John's gospel, uh, she's only referred to by her title. Uh, she's the mother, right? She's the mother of Jesus. If we only had uh, John's gospel, we would not have known that her name was Mary. Uh, any of you have that kind of friend uh, in the neighborhood where everybody ended up at their house, right? She was not just like the mom of that fam family. She was kind of like the neighborhood mom, right? All of your bikes know? Yes? Yeah, okay. Yeah, so it's a little bit like that, I think. So, you know, she comes to him and she's like, they're out of wine. And his response is, uh, woman, uh, what does that have to do with me? Or with us, actually, is what he says. Which seems a little, a little uh, short. Like, uh, I'm, I'm not so sure, Jesus, you should be calling your mom woman. <laughs> uh, I'm not so sure what she thought about it either. Interestingly enough, according to our story, she doesn't respond to him. She just turns to uh, his disciples and she, and she says, uh, do whatever he says. I guess her expectation is, is that he is going to do what she's asked him to do and she's not going to respond to his comment of woman. I'm not sure. He then says, he has this odd statement. He's like, it's not my, it's not my turn. Um, my, my time has not yet come. So if, if we're hearing the gospel for the first time, that really sounds odd. Like, what in the world is that about? Not my turn. <laughs> sounds like one of my kids. Hey, can you do this? It's not my turn to do the dishes. It's not my turn to, to, to do the, uh, you know, the drink run. But 
what we find out later in the gospel is that Jesus will say this multiple times throughout this book of signs, that his time had not yet come. And then in chapter 13, it opens and it says, when his time had come. And so we know the rest of the story. We know that there's this kind of major event in the life of Jesus that's going to kind of cast a shadow across the rest of it, right? His arrest, his trial, his death, and his, his resurrection. The water that gets used in this story is also interesting. And uh, commentators will debate kind of ad infinitum about this one. But it says that there were six stone jars. Now, a couple of things about them. It says they hold 20 to 30 gallons apiece. So somebody help me out with the math. If we have 20 gallons times six, that's what, 120 gallons? And if they were, if they were at the higher end at 30 gallons, that would go up to 180 gallons? So we're talking about after the wine had run out, they, they made somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons of wine. Like, I don't know how big this wedding was, but, but that's, that's going to provide for a lot of people. And I, I actually do know how big these little villages were that hugged the shore of Galilee. They were small. I mean, they probably didn't have more than 150, 200 people living in them, and that's every man, woman, and child. So we, we, have, we have like a gallon of wine, perhaps, for everybody. But maybe, maybe more interestingly is that they came out of stone jars. Now, this is a, a piece of information that might easily get past us kind of in our setting. But in the Jewish setting, uh, having stone jars was important for following the ritual laws of dietary purity. In other words, eating kosher, in order to do so, you needed water out of a stone jar. Because out of an earthen vessel, out of like a clay jar, you don't know whether or not the water is clean. That is not like hygienically clean, but spiritually clean. Is it pure water to be used for the washing of the utensils, for the preparing of the meal? And so in Jewish circles, uh, there's a variety of ways in which someone might become spiritually unclean. And if they were to touch the uh, kind of clay vessel, then the water in it would also kind of be unfit for preparation. So <clears throat> here's an implication perhaps. By turning the water from the stone jars into wine, it means that there's now no water with which to follow the ritual laws of purity. So that some have suggested that Jesus is kind of flipping the script. He's changing the equation. He's telling them that, that they've over-focused on external purity, things that they might clean themselves or their utensils with. And he's changing this to an emphasis on an internal purity. As opposed to the water that we would wash with, we now have this new wine that we will drink, that will purify us uh, internally, not uh, externally. Perhaps. Um, let's look a little bit. I, I hinted at this earlier about kind of who knows what in this story. Because I think it speaks to, in some ways, the lack of utility of this particular story, or our typical utility, the typical usefulness of it. So what do we know about the servants? Jesus, Jesus says this to them. It says in John 2, Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine, 
and did not know where it had come from, though the servants knew where they had drawn it from. So it doesn't say that the servants knew that they got wine out. It just says they knew where they got it from. They'd got it from the stone jars. And he doesn't know where it came from. I just find that fascinating. Because it, again, with, without healing someone, without delivering someone, without making some kind of, of, of um, public pronouncement about Jesus, his first miracle kind of just provides something for us that I think perhaps we forget in the hardship of life that God wants to provide for us. The kingdom of God is not coming so we can survive another day. The kingdom of God is coming so that we can thrive, so that we can flourish, so that we can be the people that God has made us to be. This is, this is about God's love and God's generosity. God, God's, God doesn't have like a, a shortage on his bank account. God doesn't have like a limit to, to his, his uh, abilities. And God doesn't have a limit to his capacity uh, for love. There's a passage in Isaiah that gets paired with this that also talks about marriage. But it talks about marriage not between just a man and a woman. It talks about marriage between God and humanity. That the real marriage is not between one human and another human. That the ultimate marriage is between God and us. That, that God sees our relationship as one of a union. As two coming together to be one. It's a fulfillment of the coming of God and the promised Messiah. Weddings, as we know, are a time of feasting, not a time of fasting. Like we might have fasted before the wedding because we want to look good on the dance floor. But when we get to the wedding, right, that's not the time to say, uh, I think I'm going to cut back a little bit, right? That's the time to celebrate. The psalm that we, that we read this morning or heard read among us uh, for the call to worship also spoke about the abundance of God. In John's gospel, it records something else where Jesus would say, I've come to give you life and life more abundantly. Now, I don't think that's just a matter of kind of material goods. I think it's a matter of, of joy and peace and love and kindness and goodness. These are the things that kind of overflow in our lives. And I also know that we live lives that are often complicated, that in the same day, you can be both kind of joyful and sorrowful. In the same day, you can experience kindness, or you might be the agent of kindness, and you might also be the agent of, of greed or egotism. Yeah, It's a mix. But... Not all the time does it have to be a mix. Some of the times it can be just this, this kind of abundant love and uh, overwhelming generosity where, where the first sign that Jesus does of, of miraculous activity is to take a wedding that was about to end short and in the Jewish circles, weddings could last for three days. Maybe that's why they needed all those gallons right? 
and he extends it. He says, we don't have to stop the party just yet. 1 Corinthians 12 is another passage that gets kind of paired with John 2 in the Christian lectionary. It's an interesting one, and it might seem to be out of place with the, with the passage from Isaiah and the passage from the Psalm and the passage from the Gospel. It's a passage that talks about there being a variety of gifts. But I think that variety of gifts is also a story of abundance. Look, God is giving us everything we need. We, we have people who can do numbers, and we have people who can do words, and we have people who can do art, and we have people who can build things, and we have people who can teach, and we have people who can sing, and we have people who are wise, and we have people who have understanding. And all of these gifts that are in the church are gifts that are in the church. They're not gifts that are in me or gifts that are in you. And they're not just for me or just for you. That the, the abundance of the kingdom is for us. This is another way in which I think that Dr. King's message needs to be kind of retold and retold. His dream of a, of a beloved community is only possible with a beloved economy. Right? He could get marginalized and he could get threatened and he can get kind of... Uh, scandalized on the news and what have you, as long as he's speaking for a beloved community. But you shift that language from we should be nice to each other and share restaurants and water fountains to we need to be paid the same and we need to ask questions of economics when it comes to war and who's dying and who's sending and who's going. Right? <clears throat> In Memphis, he was there to protest not racial injustice, but economic injustice, right? It was there to argue for equal pay amongst the trash collectors. So a beloved community gets you beaten and imprisoned. Arguing for a beloved economy can get you killed. And I think it's the same for Jesus. When Jesus comes and he argues that we should be together, that's, uh, you know, that's troublesome. When you're in Galilee and you're saying, hey, this, this thing is not just for us, it's for them, it's for all of us. It can get you marginalized. You take that message to the capital city in Jerusalem and it can get you arrested and killed. But this is the story that we're a part of. This is the story that I think is the best story ever told. It's a story that we have been invited to participate in. A story of abundance. There are some that say a different story, a story of scarcity, a story of fear, a story where we're not sure of the future. But that's not the Christian story. The Christian story is that God will provide that God will take care of the future. That the future actually represents the coming and fulfillment of God. And so that us now, right, can start to live in the fullness of those things. This is how we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who is in heaven, let your name be sanctified and hallowed. 
Let your kingdom come and let your will happen. As on heaven, also on the earth. Give us this day the daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. That prayer for God's kingdom to come and God's will to happen on earth as it is in heaven suggests that in some ways God's will is not being experienced on earth. That God's kingdom is yet to be established here. That's why we're praying for it. We're praying for the coming of God's kingdom. We're praying for the coming of God's will. That God's will will happen on earth as it is happening in heaven. And so I get it that we're between, we're betwixt and between, right? We're praying for something and hoping for something that's been promised but has not yet been fully realized. But that, that prayer, give us today the daily bread, could easily sound like, and I think it does in the English translation, give me just enough to get by today. That's all I need, God. Just give me enough for today. I just need to survive. But in the old covenant, God would give bread that was just good for a day, and then it would spoil. But this prayer, give us today the daily bread. The daily bread was something that we would have to wait for. But we're wanting it today. We're wanting that which should come tomorrow, today. It actually, and, and I'm not alone in this, it's often interpreted as a prayer, not just for sustenance, but as a prayer for abundance. That, that Jesus is teaching us to pray for and to expect more than just enough to get along. That that line in the prayer matches perfectly with his comment later in John's Gospel that he gives life and life more abundantly. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.